in our previous class, we had just ended the chapter 11, which was the chapter of the divine vision. And we just kind of forayed into chapter 12. Um, but we saw in the previous chapter, this divine vision, Arjuna having that samadhi experience and experience of cosmic consciousness, uh, experiencing Krishna in his absolute, infinite, omnipresent state. But then it ends, interestingly, with Arjuna saying, whoa, 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 yeah, come back to me in the familiar form that I know you come back to me as Krishna. Come back to me in the way that I can relate to you as my friend, as my companion, as my guru above all. And Krishna, of course, says, behold, you know, that form which is <laughs> less scary to you. And we talked about how the devotee, of course, in meditation, we all play through that experience just as our consciousness begins to expand more than our physical being, our mental being can handle, there's that fear that sets in. And we have to kind of step back towards a little bit away from the precipice of infinity, back into what we can in that moment relate to the most. So from there, of course, Arjuna begins the 12th chapter, which is the chapter titled The Path of Bhakti Yoga. He begins the first verse with this question. Between those who worship you with steadfast devotion and those who concentrate on the absolute, which is better versed in the yoga science? Now, having had that cosmic experience and then wanting Krishna to return back to a familiar form, Arjuna is kind of wondering, like, wait, you know, should I have chosen that? Should I have chosen this? Which is the better way to go about it? Should I have just devotion to you as you are in your form? Or should I be seeking that absolute omnipresent infinite state? And I love the question that he asks because he's not saying which is better, who is a better devotee, but he says, who is better versed in the yoga science? Because we think that if you're seeking the absolute, that means you're following the yogic path. And if you're seeking Krishna or a form or a particular more personal relationship, we think of that as the path of bhakti yoga alone. But Arjuna is, of course, asking, what is and who is better versed in the yoga science? Because who's better equipped to experience union is essentially what that means. Who's going to unite with you faster, quicker? Who's going to get there earlier? And uh, Krishna says, to those whose minds are fixed on me and are ever united to me in pure devotion, are in my eyes the best worst in yoga. Now, a lot of people, this is a big part, of, I mean, the bhakti movement loves this chapter. <laughs> it's just like, uh, you see, he doesn't want us to do yoga, and he doesn't want us to meditate. He only wants us to just Sing. love him. Yeah, which, which to them, I mean, I, no judgment, of course, it's a beautiful expression. We just did it ourselves, yeah. is to sing and dance and, you know, worship him in his outward form. Now, imagine for a moment the omnipresent state of infinite consciousness that is Krishna, looking down on each of us and just seeing all of us dancing and singing, and he's like, Us bande ko lao. <laughs> he needs freedom, chalo. You know? <laughs> because who are these people if they're dancing and singing, which is a beautiful, again, a beautiful expression, but then they go about being who they are, judgmental, criticizing, <laughs> upset, angry, cheating, because I have danced and I have loved Krishna for that moment. Therefore, now I don't need to do anything else. Because here Krishna says, he who is devoted to me, 
um, him, I assume to be better versed in, you know, better than yoga is your devotion. Of course, then he goes to those, however, who aspire to the indestructible, and he explains, and we went through this, so I don't want to keep going through it. He says, even those who are seeking the absolute, in truth, verily, they too attain me. So he's also trying to help us understand that it's both, it's two parts, it doesn't really matter so much, but for Krishna, because Krishna is not I mean, sometimes you might think Krishna is like, I'm the best, <laughs> you know. So whatever you do to me is really going to be the better. But Krishna is like super practical because that's the guru's role. He sees the devotee where the devotee is and he says, okay, how are you going to ascend to me more easily? And his in his practicality, what he says is, those who make the unmanifested their primary goal make the path more difficult for themselves. Arduous is that path for embodied beings. Now, if I say I'm going to seek the unmanifest, the word itself, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> what does unmanifest mean? What does absolute Satchitananda mean? What does infinite consciousness mean? So, when we seek God, and those who tend to follow this path have a more intellectual bent, they enjoy, you know, reading and contemplating a lot more. But in that intellectual pursuit, they themselves don't really know. It's just words oftentimes. It's just concepts. And they don't really know. And Krishna says, arduous is that path for an embodied being. Because as long as we're embodied, we live in a world of duality. Living in a world of duality, the con very concept of absolute is, is just not even conceivable by us. We don't know what absolute anything means. We've not experienced anything that is absolute. We've only experienced relative states. We've experienced a lot of joy and happiness in this life, but we've also experienced a lot of sorrow, disappointment, unhappiness simultaneously. And our state of happiness only exists as an opposite to the state of unhappiness. That's how we judge the two to exist. We wouldn't even know what bliss would feel like because we've not yet experienced that absolute state. So Krishna is not saying, oh, those people. He's just saying, you make it harder for yourself because you're trying to attune and attain some state that as an embodied being, as that, you know, experience of duality just becomes that much harder. In addition, he adds, which this is, we left it here, and this is my favorite part of this whole chapter. For those who venerate me only, again, you know, me as in not Krishna, as some sort of individual who lived 4,000 years ago, but as the form in this particular case of the guru, of your guide, or of any aspect of the divine that you use as a window to the, that infinite consciousness. For those who venerate me only, offering to me all their actions, their minds concentrated on me by yoga practice, and their heart's feelings uplifted to me in devotion. Big things, <laughs> not that easy to achieve, but these are the expectations Krishna has of those who love him. So, you know, I don't read here at all those who dance and sing and wave candles at me. I, I mean, unless I missed a sentence in there. But then what does he say? Such devotees I rescue from the ocean of mortality. This is the aspect of creating a personal relationship with the divine. 
when you create a personal relationship with the divine, the divine intervenes in your life. Grace can only be drawn, which is what Krishna is saying, then I don't expect you to do all the work yourself. Then I come down and I rescue you. Because you've invited me, you've made me a part of your life, of this process. When we're working with the unmanifest alone, it's like, I, I don't even know who I'm talking to or who I'm making this relationship up with. It's all in my head. And I'm doing nothing really on a daily basis, whether it's through yoga, whether it's through japa, whether it's through singing, whether it's through dancing, whatever that relationship it is that you want to create with the divine. As long as there is nothing where there is a, where it's just one-sided of contemplating some random state of being, then the universe cannot participate in your in your life, in your spiritual growth as easily. And so this is an important state of how do I attract grace into my life? And Krishna says you attract grace by building a relationship with me. Me, and again, you have to keep stressing this because it's an important thing. We think about the Gita as something that's Krishna specific, but the Gita is really that state of consciousness that every self-realized master has achieved and comes to share with us how to achieve it as well. Your guru, your guide, whatever form of, even the deity that you kind of have that deep, absolute faith and love for. Because that's what devotion is. It's just important to kind of tune into devotion for a moment. There's this fun story. Perhaps I've already shared it in this Gita classes. Who knows, we're at 45 class, so it must have come out at some point or the other. But there's this man, young man, looking for God, you know, as, as we are, all are, or at least we pretend to be sometimes. Looking for God, finds this you know, hermit far off from, the, from his village, in, you know, on the uh, ghats, on the uh, banks of the river, in his little hut. And he approaches this great saint and he says, I want you to show me God. I want you to help me find God. And the saint says nothing and he gets up and he walks into the water and he motions the young devotee over <laughs> and the young devotee is assuming ki mera kuch initiation hone wala hai. what's he going to do with me and he walks into the water <laughs> to the saint and the saint takes his head and plunges it <laughs> into the water and just holds it there and this guy's thrashing and he's having <laughs> and he's going through the hole. This is one of those CIA torture techniques. Anyway, he's right there in there and kind of struggling a lot and then finally the saint brings him up and this man takes this deep gasp and the saint asks him when you were down there what was the one thing you wanted the most and the man says air air and the saint says when you want God that badly then come back to me so it takes a little bit of work here it's not going to just you know you can't do this process half-heartedly you can't do it as if is just a side business that I'm going to, yeah, I'll see God on the side here, <laughs> you know, and then I'll just do whatever I want in my life. Or when I retire. Oh, when I retire, yeah. <laughs> 65 ke baad karte hai, <laughs> you know, just like, Chalo, pension bhi hai, ye bhi hai, sab <laughs> So that's what it takes. Ah, oh, when you want God that badly, you come to me. And that's the important aspect. Lot of people, misunderstand bhakti yoga to mean love for God. Because love is a major component of bhakti, but devotion is not the same as love. Because when I say the words, a mother who is devoted to her child, it's a whole other reality. She loves her child, but it's more than that. 
every second, every moment of her life is for her child. When she's cooking, she's thinking of her child. When she's about to go to bed, she's thinking, Achha, mera agar gaya, to kya hone wala hai? When she goes out to shop, she's wondering, I hope my child is fine. So that devotion is not love. Love is like, Aja mere laad le, aja chalo, chalo. <laughs> now, ab thoda, papa ko thoda kaam karna types, you know? That's the little love that we assume God expects of us. But this is devotion, which is entirely different. This is like saying that the greatest cricketer in the world, which let's assume for right now being Virat Kohli, is devoted to cricket, which means what? Which means he wakes up in the morning and is thinking about cricket and he eats according to what his cricket demands and he goes and he works out according to what the workout that his cricket performance demands and when he's playing cricket, he's thinking about how he can perfect whatever when he's with people, he's probably thinking about when the next practice is going to be. That's devotion and that's what makes somebody the greatest whatever. So in that moment, this guy's not wondering, ah, yaar, ye bhi chha, itni jaldi padega. oh, yaar, I can't eat pizza all day. Ay, cricketer ban gaya hai, kya problem? You know, nobody's thinking about, I have to love cricket so badly, so therefore I can't do it. When you're devoted to something, everything else just falls off. It doesn't matter the hardships, it doesn't matter the renunciation, it doesn't matter what you have to do. A mother who is sick and herself going through so much trouble, but if she has her child, she's only going to think of her child. Can we say with all sincerity that we love God with that ardor, that our devotion is of that kind of caliber? And that's what Krishna is trying to stress here. Not just love me and You know, it's not a bribe, which is what most of us believe God's relationship with us to be. If I give you some money, if I go and do the exact puja that you want, if I, you know, offer 16 rounds of whatever it is, then you ought to make my life better. Is a mother asking her child, now you must make my life better. You know, no. Is a cr cricketer expecting of cricket now to somehow change his life? No, he's only interested in giving. And that's a very, 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 very important aspect that has to be established as part of this chapter. Because if you think, a lot of people come to me and say, my way is bhakti. But is your way bhakti? <laughs> you know? Do you know what that means? Are you doing that? Are you devoted to Krishna? Or is it that, yeah, whenever things get hard, then you think of him and then you say, ki usne mera wo parking, mera ko parking lot nahi mil raha tha aur usne dilwa diya because he loves me so much. You know, right? so that's an important aspect of where Krishna wants us to go because that devotion leads to union. Therefore, these people, I believe, are better versed in yoga than those who conceptualize God and think that God is some alien reality that you must achieve. Because an intellectual seeker looks at the world with disdain and a bhakti looks at the world and sees only Krishna. That's the difference. So who do you think is going to unite with Krishna first? The guy who looks down upon the world and says, yes, sab maya hai? Or the guy who looks wherever and sees only Krishna everywhere. And that's what we need to learn to develop because irrespective of what you think your nature is, this and without this 
that union is impossible. So, let's continue. Verse 8, immerse your consciousness in me alone. He doesn't make it easy. You know? He's just like, he, he, he thoda, he, I mean, the bar is set really high by the Gita. So anybody who reads the Gita and thinks he, he wants the absolute minimum from me, I don't know which verses they're reading. Immerse your consciousness in me alone. Direct all your discrimination toward finding me. Beyond any doubt, then you shall come to me. Now, that's the other thing Krishna says. If you build a relationship with me, there is no doubt you will come to me. There's a certain certainty, an absolute knowing at the end of this whole process. And I love that he uses the word discrimination because discrimination is really the tool of the jnani. The jnani's role is to discriminate and says, what's truth, where is truth, where is God, and all of this, who am I? But the jnani tends, in his discrimination, as we said, to become so indifferent to the world, whereas the bhakti, through his discrimination, falls in love with the world because he falls in love with God in everything that he perceives. O Dhananjaya Arjuna, uh, this is another really fun part of the Gita. O Dhananjaya Arjuna, if you cannot absorb your thoughts in the contemplation of me, then, you know, these are, now he'll give nice, very wonderful conditions. Keep stepping down for us till we reach a level that he says, O Dhananjaya Arjuna, if you cannot absorb your thoughts in the contemplation of me, then practice the techniques of yoga intended to help develop concentration. So first he says, immerse your consciousness entirely in me. So that's like the highest level of existence that Krishna says a bhakti should have. If you consider yourself a bhakti yogi. Secondly, if you cannot absorb all your thoughts in contemplation of me, so raise your hand. Okay, I can't do that. I cannot contemplate and absorb all my thoughts into Krishna yet. I just can't because right now I'm thinking about what's for dinner. And I can't give that to Krishna yet. So for me, there's still a way to love him entirely. And that way is by practicing the techniques of yoga because they are intended to help you develop concentration. When Patanjali laid out his Ashtanga Yoga, the pathway to Samadhi, he laid it out just, I mean, just so beautifully. He starts with the Yamas and the Niyamas, which Krishna will also address cryptically, um, which is just the foundation of how to live. He goes into Asana, of how the posture of the body is and how to achieve perfect stillness. He goes into Pranayam, which is the control of our life force. He goes into Pratyahar, which is the withdrawal of our senses and our mind away from the outward world. Then he goes into dharan, which is having gained control of all your life force and having interiorized all your life force, you now learn how to single-pointedly shoot your awareness and your prana to one singular object. And this singular object is Krishna, is your guru. So he's saying, if you can't get absorption, because from dharan comes dhyan. And dhyan is complete absorption in that which you were concentrating on. 
So if you can't get to dhyan, if you can't be absorbed in me, and after dhyan, of course, comes samadhi. So he's stepping the whole reality down for us. Dhyan nahi ho rahe to dharan karo. And if you want dharan, you need to practice certain techniques because most of us just can't concentrate. I mean, it takes like three seconds for us for the mind to start drifting off into some other reality. Even while we're at work, even while we're at home, even while we're listening to this talk, I mean, all our minds are probably all over the place. A part of it is probably listening, but a large part tends to want to wander. So what will you give to Krishna if you don't even have any control over your own awareness? So that's first. Let's see if we cannot now. Tenth. If, however, you find yoga practice too difficult, and a lot of people are there too, aren't they? A lot of us find meditation and the practices of pranayama and the practices of the austerities of the yoga techniques too difficult. Then perform every action in the thought of me. You say, okay, then go about what you're going to do anyway, whatever your activities are, just think of me while you do them. By this means too, shall you achieve final success. So he's saying, okay, ye nahi ho raha aapse, ab aap ye karo, which is, you're going to go to work tomorrow, think of me while you're at work. You're going to be at home and, you know, be with your family, think of me while you're with them. Essentially, see me in everything that you do. See me everywhere and naturally you're going to start thinking of me wherever you are. So that's the other way that you can approach me if that is too hard for you. Now, even if this is too hard, but if even while active, you cannot think of me. Again, raise your hands. <laughs> you know. I mean, how long does it take before? We, in every morning, we have our meditations. And at the end of the meditation, I'm like, today? Today, God, I'm going to think of you entirely. And this amazing experience that I've just had in my meditation, I'm going to hold on to this. And then, here comes the Mali. <laughs> like, Mali, pani mat do abhi. Gaya. Here comes the chai. Ah, chai. <laughs> Gaya. Too hot. Ah, here comes the heat. AC dalte. Gaya. I mean, so this is the process. I mean, this is just reality. And Krishna, in his amazingness, knows exactly what's going to happen to us. So he says, Chal, beta, He's just dumbing the spiritual path down for us. Until what he says is, if even, but if even while active, you cannot think of me, then give me your intentions. And then he says, ever striving to discipline your mind, offer me the fruits of your every labor. Which means when your activity is over, then say, take this. Take whatever comes from this. So now he's saying at the end of every activity, then you should think of me. And if nothing else, at least say that you're, I intended to think of you. Then give me your intentions. Actions ni de sakte ho. Fruits ni de sakte ho. Intention to de do. There is this beautiful uh, translation, an, uh, an old translation, when the British first discovered the Gita and they started translating it into English. There was this gentleman, Sir Edwin Arnold. And he translated the Gita as it ought to be because the Gita is a poem. It's a song. 
and we're reading it more in a more kind of transliterated. But if you do an original translation, it has to be poetic. So he did a poetic translation and he called it the Song Celestial. And in that, you know, he takes, of course, a little creative uh, license as he ought to. And in that he says, these, in these words, he says, if you can't do this, then if you can't do this, then if you can't do this. And the last line he puts it, and it's so beautiful. And this is one that Yogananda often repeated to his disciples. He said, if in this your faint heart fails, then bring me your failure. Isn't that so beautiful? Just give me your failures. Just give me the fact that you can't do this. Even that I'll take from you. But you have to give him something real. We give him fake stuff. Or like give him social media fake, you know? Everything we put on is just worked on and touched upon and <laughs> brightened and everything's edited. That's what we give Krishna. This version of ourselves that we are. But we don't know how to give him ourselves. And if you can't give him yourself, you are not a bhakti yogi. You know, he doesn't want your dancing and your singing and your waving. He wants you. That's what he wants from us. And so look at the Gita and just see where you are and find your spot here on this ladder. And then say, let me start here. Let me start by giving him my failures. Because I fail often at this job of giving myself to him. And then let me ascend. And in the ascension, your yoga practices are right there. Just one step below complete absorption with him. So as a bhakti yogi, don't ever disregard the yogic path. Especially that your guru has laid before you. Because that would be an excuse not to put energy out. Not to give him your complete prana. Which is what he expects from you. Perseverance in pursuing self-knowledge and sincere aspiration to experience it through meditation is better than the possession of theoretical knowledge. This is an easy one to realize. Then he says, but offering up to me the fruits of your actions, moreover, is better than one-sided and restless meditation. Shall we raise our hands again? How often are your meditations one-sided? What's a one-sided meditation? One-sided meditation is where you've been sitting there, but nobody's coming. Swamiji would define meditation as listening to God. But most of us, even in our meditation, want to do the talking. Every, all my intentions that I have set for today should be fulfilled. But you know, the mind is going about its usual chatter. And that's a one-sided meditation because God's not even there. Meditation has to be a reception, a receptivity of that consciousness of Krishna. And if that hasn't happened... If you've not achieved a deep meditation, then that day focus especially on offering the fruits of your labors to him because what your med purpose of your meditation was not fulfilled. So don't say many meditate curly. Then it's the same as going to a temple and doing you know the same stuff, which is again another excuse. I meditate curly. I can do anything. 
So be very aware because Krishna is a pragmatic person. He's only talking about what works. He's not talking about random, vague, fuzzy, beta, beta, tera, mein sab dekh lunga stuff. He's very, very clear. These are the steps. <laughs> this is what needs to be done. This is how you come to me. And if there's any fuzziness in there, that's fuzziness of your own confusion. Action coupled with renunciation of the fruits of action, these two things, acting every day, which is what the first question of Arjuna was, should I fight? Should I act? Should I engage in this world? Or should I just withdraw from it entirely? Action coupled with renunciation of the fruits of action brings inner peace, which makes it possible. And so we just carry so much of this baggage into our meditations and then we play around with that baggage during our meditations. In the Bible, Christ said, before you go into the temple, if you have a quarrel with your brother, first fix that quarrel and then come to the temple to pray. And there's this story of Michelangelo when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, which is, of course, this beautiful image of God and man, you know, uniting, coming together. And as he was painting, there was a certain section, no matter how often he painted, he was unable to paint it well. So he didn't have to do it again. He was doing it again. And he kept doing this, and he couldn't figure out why it's not coming out the way it should. And then he said it. He immediately remembered this passage from the Bible, and he remembered that he had had a fight with a friend of his that morning. And so he drops, lets go of his pain, goes, finds the friend, fixes whatever issue he had, and comes back and paints it perfectly. And so that's our lives. We, we just go about, and that's why, because where I was saying, Patanjali establishing the yamas and the niyamas was so important. This is how you live. Because we don't know what, I mean, if somebody says, how do I have, not have desire for the fruits of my actions? Uh, you know, it's such a hard concept. Okay, I want to make money. How should I work and not want to make money? How should I love my family and not actually want love back from them? I mean, how do I go about these things? Because it's, it's so weird otherwise. But the yamas and the niyamas are allowing you to establish that consciousness. When you have non-violence, when you have non-lying in you, when you have non-greed, when you have non-attachment, when you develop non-sensuality, when you develop contentment, cleanliness, tapasya, self-study and devotion, when you can develop these th 10 things outwardly in your daily lives, only then can you truly ascend up to perfect asana. Because until the yamas and the niyamas are not, I wouldn't say perfected, but deeply established, you will never be able to achieve perfect stillness in meditation. There will always be restlessness because there will always be one vritti or the other spinning around, drawing your attention to that. And if you can't be perfectly still, you'll never have complete control over your prana. Pranayama will not be established. If you don't have complete control over your prana, pratyahar will never happen. If pratyahar doesn't happen, dharan will not happen. If dharan doesn't happen, absorption will not happen. So it's just a domino effect. And so what Krishna is saying to us is action and renunciation for the fruit of the action have to go hand in hand. Only then will you be able to even meditate properly on me. So those of us who try to think he's samadhi ka wala hai, you know, this is a very humbling truth that Krishna is establishing for us. 
भाई पहले तो सीख ले कि हाउ डू यू टर्न दी ए सी ऑन विदाउट विदाउट गेटिंग अपसेट अबाउट द हीट दैट्स द सिंपलेस्ट थिंग इफ यू कान डू दैट वॉट समाधि आर यू लुकिंग टू अचीव what state of great expansive infinite omnipresent consciousness do you think how deluded can we be to assume that that state should be ours while here we are unable to go through a somewhat warm evening and of course krishna is not saying you shouldn't want the ac act and immediately renounce the fruits of that action and then you're done so we're going to have to keep acting we can't just sit like a vegetable and say krishna ne bola tha kuch nahi karna hai to main kuch bhi nahi kar raha hu you know so there this is where we find ourselves now i want to end this chapter really even though there are a few more verses left and the next verses are essentially something that krishna has said over and over every chapter he says exactly these words i'm going to read one so you get the feel and you will be like oh yeah ye sun chuke hain hum <laughs> he who bears no ill will towards anyone who is kind and friendly to all who has no consciousness of i and mine who is ever even minded during pain and pleasure who is forgiving toward all who inwardly is contented and steadfast in his yoga meditation practices who is self controlled who tries faithfully to unite his soul to me who is firm in determination and whose mind and discrimination are surrendered to me such a one is dear to me <laughs> like so if you want to be a dear one to krishna ye thoda usne i don't know somehow they say god's love is unconditional but yahan thode conditions lag rahe hain mere ko <laughs> but this is what krishna and this is this is the theme of the gita you can't get through any chapter without krishna saying you have to be even minded in pain and pleasure you have to do this you can't you have to love everyone you can have no judgment i mean so of course he is expecting all of this and he says this six seven more times in the coming uh, verses but then he ends with the last verse which is the verse you know that we need to remember but those who filled with devotion pursue the deathless dharma i have described are ever engrossed to me are above all dear to me filled with devotion theek hai main tere ko bol raha hu ki you have to do all this really heavy stuff and it sounds really high but if you are devoted to me all this will come so easily to you because if you love me what else will you do will you ever shout at anybody if you love me truly will you ever judge somebody if you love me truly will you ever criticize anybody if you love me truly will you ever be bothered about pain and pleasure if you love me truly hoyega hi nahi that is why krishna is saying the path of devotion and bhakti can be seen as a higher path not because it's a better path but in truth it's an easier path but because your bhakti includes everything else it includes true discrimination it includes your yoga practices because as we said it's not about love it's about devotion which is different which says i do everything for you every moment of my life is yours 
And if I have to stay up all night meditating, I'm going to do that. If I have to hold my mind steady and not let it wander off, I'm going to do that. And then I don't care, is this yoga, is this this, is this Kriya yoga, is this meditation. That's the beauty of the Bhakti Yogi. He's like, I'm only doing this because I love you. I don't know what I'm doing. But that's because I love you. And that's the kind of sweet quality that Krishna expects of us. So anyway, just a beautiful, beautiful reminder of what true Bhakti is. Because that's one of those things that people use Bhakti as a... Because I'm a bhakti yogi. So if you're a bhakti yogi, this is a part of bhakti yogi. Just a reminder. Anyway, Narayani, if you have some closing thoughts. Well, I was thinking how quickly time goes by in general. I remember 10 years ago, time didn't pass so fast. Somehow, suddenly, nowadays, a day goes by very quickly. One hour means nothing to us. You know, some, you know, 10 years ago, if someone told you, well, I'll meet you in an hour. Wow, one hour, <laughs> I have so much time to do so many things. Now, the concept of time has changed. That means that every minute counts. So it's very important for us to ask ourselves, especially in this context, what I am devoted to in my life. Scan through your life and see what have you been committed to, to seek, to pursue in this lifetime. What are your priorities? And what are you doing to become good at it. If you want to become an excellent yogi, a true yogi, how much time are you devoting to your spiritual practices? How much time daily are you putting aside to perform your actions thinking about the divine? How much time do you spend in meditation? How much time are you serving your guru's work? How do you keep your temple? How do you keep your heart? What kind of attitudes I'm devoted to practice daily in order to achieve the goal that I'm committed to, I'm loyal to, to. And perhaps that goal is very different for each one of us, but the goal of finding true happiness will require some commitment from your part. And you will need to invest certain time, certain amount of energy, so by the end of your life, when all that time has passed by, you don't ask yourself, what I have done with my life? I have been only working, 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 and 60 years have passed by, and I feel empty. What I have done with my time, where do I have invested to, devoted to? And this is a good question to ask ourselves. If not daily, you know, perhaps every month. How I have used 
this month, what I have done, what, what, how I have managed my time. And this is very important for us to start prioritizing what really is valuable in our lives. Lahiri Mahashaya used to say, if you don't invite God in the summer of your life, he won't come in the winter of it. So don't expect that you can have the luxury to live a life where you are indulging in everything carelessly and then demanding why God is not answering to your questions, why he's not giving you the success that you have been looking for. What have you been giving back to him? I mean, the relationship has to be balanced and equal. So start thinking, what am I doing? What I'm giving, what I'm offering into this relationship? Only then you will be, you will earn that question. You'll be able to, to demand. You'll be able to demand, where are you? Come to me now. Help me in this. Show me that. Only then you will have the right to ask in such a way. So, so see what are the adjustments that you have to make in your life. And for some people, they don't feel to be a yogi in this lifetime is their dharma, but perhaps it's to be a successful people, or perhaps it's to be, you know, an amazing actor or an actress. What are you doing to become the best of it? How devoted are you to that pursuit that you so much believe in? So reorganize your life a little bit. Be practical and start prioritizing what do I really want to devote my life to and how much time and energy do I need to invest uh, on it. And only then, only then, you can come to Krishna, to your guru, to the divine, and, and argue with him. Only then you can do that. But, but see how much you are bringing first to the table.